You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. It's Dresbert, and just going from the back of the title first, I'm Heather Hurlbert, Director of New Models of Policy Change at New America. And I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the author of Spoiler Alerts for the Washington Post. And today we have a teaser for you. We will be talking politics. You will be able to yell at your screen and shake your fist at Donald Trump. But first, actual developments in foreign policy, or if you like, just click ahead. Um, so, yeah, so we have late breaking news. Literally, I believe 20 minutes before we started recording this, uh, it came over the transom that Vladimir Putin uh, has announced that he is withdrawing the main, uh, I think, main forces uh, that he has in Syria. Um, he informed Bashir al-Assad of that in a phone call. Uh, my understanding is, is that he, the, the naval base in Tartus and a large air force base uh, will not be evacuated. The Russians are clearly going to have uh, forces there, which doesn't necessarily change all that much, I think, from the pre-October status quo. But the important thing is that Russian forces, at least if you believe Vladimir Putin, are leaving. And the interesting question one would want to ask is, what is going on? Well, and the nice thing about this bit of breaking news, as opposed to other bits of breaking news, is that we can feel really confident that um, between the time we are having this conversation and that it takes our overlords to put it up, um, there won't have been a definitive explanation of what is going on or what we can expect to happen next. So, Heather, we can seize the narrative. This is awesome. We've got to take advantage of this. Dan, Dan, you're not supposed to tell them you're seizing the narrative. You're just supposed to do it. Okay, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so backing up to the part where we seize the narrative or where, being us, what we do is present alternative possibilities for seizing the narrative and you, the viewer, can choose your own narrative adventure. <laughs> We need a blogging heads like that where, where the reader can decide, do you agree with Dan or do you agree with Heather? And then you click on that and then like one or the other one of us explodes or something, something bad happens. That is, yeah, something falls on my head. Uh, Although yeah. I just I just had people in looking at my house and so it wouldn't entirely shock me if it's a 1927 house, something could fall on my head. Okay. But, but speaking of things falling on your head, one of the interesting developments which may or may not have played a role in this was the announcement over the weekend from the Gulf Arab states that they were going to continue and accelerate their sending of anti-aircraft weaponry to the rebels in Syria after a MiG was shot down in the last couple of weeks. So one factor that you have here is the Russians succeeded in their, or appear to have succeeded in their near to medium term goal of rescuing Assad's regime from a fairly low point, getting it back to where it's um, on the offensive militarily. But by doing so, they also succeeded in um, getting the Gulf Arab states excited and recommitted and ready to, to show that commitment by sending weapons that can actually do a serious dent both to the, to the prestige of, of Russian weaponry and if you know they actually start causing casualties, you know, cause Putin problems at home by sending pilots home in boxes. So, so that's one interesting piece of backstory here. I mean, I would assume another interesting piece of the backstory is the fact that there was at least a partial ceasefire before this that at least tentatively held for a while. Which, you know, could it be the case that that was an indication to both Russians and Americans that there was at least a possible negotiated solution? 
Well, again, if you if you sort of take Putin at his own word, and you assume that the number one Russian priority is preserving the Assad government, not incidentally, mind you, in order to preserve the Assad's government on the region that you referred to, Dan, where the naval base and the air base are, right? Because that's the ancestral Assad homeland, and that's the deep water Mediterranean port that gives lets Russia have its continued foothold as a right. Mediterranean power. So so if you assume that that was always the primary goal um and ISIS is a secondary goal <laughs> I would assume ISIS was a tertiary goal. Right, ISIS is a tertiary goal and sticking it to the US is a secondary goal. There we go. Um now now we got our priority straight. Mm-hmm. Um so you You've buttressed the position of Assad, at least for the moment. You have a partial ceasefire and cynically the worst um, international upset about humanitarian. Bless you. Bless you. It's spring. It's spring. Excuse me. Okay, given what happens to Putin's critics in Washington, I'm actually now getting a little worried. (laughs) Yeah, next the ceiling falls in. There we go. Um, No, so, so Putin you know, may think that he's achieved his short-term objectives, may think he needs to be husbanding his strength and popularity at home and make sure he doesn't have... <coughs> oh, this is embarrassing. Um, mass casualties. Now I'm, I'm having a Ted Cruz moment. Um, I'm checking my picture. Nope, nope, I'm good, I'm good. Okay. Um, so, you know, and if... There's less humanitarian outcry right now. It's a good moment for Russia to kind of get some credit by saying it's going to begin a withdrawal. Now, right. I'll be interested to check back, not just when this is posted, but in a month and say, okay, so how much has actually been withdrawn in, in reality? But it's, it's, you're, you're watching Putin sort of play, play chess on multiple levels with, with public opinion, with domestic public opinion, and in the region. I, I guess the... the- so assuming, because you're right, shockingly, not everything that is said on Twitter actually happens. So um, admittedly, even though you know there's, there's, Putin's obviously made this announcement, it'll be interesting to see if he follows through on it. I guess the obvious question is, assuming he does follow through on it, um, you know, the, the, the questions I see, I mean, the, I guess the, the question to me is whether Assad's forces can actually maintain the this current status quo or... Is this kind of like, you know, what has happened previously when great powers have stepped in with uh, incompetent proxies in which they can bolster the incompetent proxy for a while, but then eventually the proxy disappears? Well, so two thoughts about that. One is, I mean, as long as Assad retains, sorry, as long as Putin retains the airbase right. in the north of Syria and, you know, we saw early on that he was quite willing to use um both missiles and jets based outside of of Syria. You know, it's not clear to me that he can't still intervene wherever and as he thinks it's useful to prop Assad up. Mm -hmm. And so so that's, you know, kind of a tactical answer to your question that this may well. um, I mean, one thing I do think it represents is a a perception that the threat to Assad in in the capital is lower than it was. Right, and that's true. I mean, the, the, my understanding had been that there had actually, after months of not getting anything, there had been evidence that, that 
uh, Assad's forces had been making some progress. Yeah. Um, I, the other thing I am rather curious about is how the Iranians are going to react to all this. Well, you've also seen, I mean, you know, the Iranians, just to kind of run through it super quickly in the last month, have had election results that seem to empower moderates and missile tests that seem to suggest the empowerment of hardliners. So, um, and one thing that, you know, the Iranian public has made clear repeatedly is that it thinks that too much of its money is being spent in Syria. Oh, that's so, okay. so, you know, the, the Iranians are, the Iranian government is in a, is in a, a bit of a, a muddle here mm -hmm. as far as, you know, how much more can, how much more can it, again, presuming it's a unitary actor, which it's not, but how much more can the hardliners afford to double down on their investment in Syria, given that um, the pressure on them at home is not easing up? That is interesting, and I confess that I, as someone who supported the Iran deal negotiations, I hope you're right because it's the exact opposite of the standard narrative that's been offered about what the lifting of sanctions would do to Iranian actions in Syria. But, um, you know, I, whenever it comes to Syria, or for that matter, the larger Middle East, I always feel like Charlie Brown with the football. Right. Well, you know, look, honestly, all the narratives about what the lifting of sanctions would do to Iran in Syria sort of had a fatal flaw about them, which is that um, they weren't informed either by knowing the mind of the Iranian leaders or by knowing how much the Iranian economy yeah. would actually improve, right? Well, so also so they were they, they tended to be kind of over-informed by the ideology of whoever was making the narrative. Well, and the speaking, third thing was... Speaking of seizing the narrative. Yes, and the third thing they did was always dramatically overestimate actually how much money the Iranians were going to get from the lifting of sanctions um, because a lot of that money was going to be wound up using to essentially pay off debts they needed to pay off in the West no matter what. Um, right. So, yes, so, 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 uh, so I suppose yes to all of these things. Yeah, I mean, just one other, just one other point on that. You know, you've you've seen in in recent days these allegations about the Saudis, um, Saudis, Saudi rapprochement with Hezbollah. Hmm. Oh, that wouldn't that wouldn't be happening if the Iranians were so flush with money that they could continue or chose to continue to to fund Hezbollah at the level at which Hezbollah would like to continue to be accustomed. Huh. That's interesting. You know, so well, and, um, and of course, the obvious question now to ask is, is that if, if Vladimir Putin is withdrawing his forces from Syria after what was at best a sort of mixed effort at, at intervening, I mean, by the logic of this, as I understand credibility, the U.S. should now annex Crimea, right? Um, do we have to let them vote <laughs> in the primaries? Uh, <laughs> no, but this, I mean, I, you know, it, it is. Uh, it, I, so this is an interesting moment in which to to think about uh, the magnum opus that is Jeffrey Goldberg's uh, very long, I believe, 20,000 words approximately uh, in The Atlantic uh, of his myriad interviews with Barack Obama over the past year, uh, multiple years in terms of Obama's uh, thoughts about foreign policy. Um, I blogged something about this uh, end of last week. Heather, I'm sure you uh, hopefully you sure you've read the piece. Um, I will say that the first thing that did strike me, and I'm curious for your personal reaction to this, was the degree of total and complete disdain that Obama and the White House have for like the think tank community, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, yes, I, I have a three quarters completed um, 
piece ah. sitting sitting on my screen, which will be showing up in the next couple of days on Polyarchy, which is the political reform program's blog at, at Vox. And so viewers can check it out in a, in a couple days. Uh -huh. Because I have been trying to balance my genuine um, admiration for this administration, what it's tried to do, understanding of the, um, the opposition that it's faced, and my basically total bewilderment <laughs> at that um, the tone, which which is much more reminiscent of something that you would have expected to hear at a Rand Paul or Ted Cruz campaign rally in a rural red state. Wow. And I'm, I'm trying to understand how it can be the case that this president who, who, you know, resembles in, in just about every manner you can think of, and I'll come back to that in a second, who, who resembles the Washington foreign policy establishment, such as we are, mm. can can have so much so much hatred or so much disdain for it that it's it's practically self-loathing at some level. And I this I haven't published, so I'll we'll do it here. But I was sort of making up a little test of sort of well, how do you know? How do you recognize a member of the DC foreign policy establishment? And I was Ooh. creating a point system. Okay. Okay. So you get two points for being a current or former member of Congress. Okay. Uh, two points for being a current or former um, flag officer in the military. Mm -hmm. One point for being a current or former sub flag officer mm -hmm. member of the military. Uh, one point for being a current or former um, executive branch civilian official dealing with foreign affairs. Okay. Extra points. Extra point for each political appointee job you've had. Extra point for each title you've actually walked. So ambassador. So deputy assistant secretary to assistant secretary to undersecretary and so forth. Right, right. Um, so and extra points for confirmation hearings. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, point, two points if you work at a think tank. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Just for personally, if you're a non-resident fellow, is that a point or like not? We just laugh at you. Uh, okay, viewers, you can vote. I think you get at least one point okay, for that. Good. Um, one point for testifying before Congress. Ah, okay. Um, and then um, just because you know, I think this we wish this wasn't a thing, but it's a thing. I think you get another automatic point for each Ivy League degree. <laughs> oh, oh man. So um, actually, no, but but you know, you make a good point. You also get a point for uh, degrees from one of the big. What do we think you guys are now? Big three international relations schools, big four international relations schools. Um, so, so Fletcher gets you a point. Too. Oh, okay. This is my this is my point. You were, you were trying to slide. I know you were trying to stack the deck of my finger, but anyway, go ahead. No, so so you know by that standard, I mean Barack Obama has met the foreign policy establishment, and he is us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I just. By again, if you used my little chart or my little my little point system, mm -hmm. and then you think about people like um, Rosa Brooks at Foreign Policy, or you know the editor of Foreign Policy, or all of my good friends at the Cato Institute who are you know I don't agree with them on everything, but they're very uh, worthy opponents, right. as we say. And, you know, or somebody like uh, retired General Dave Barno, who commanded troops in Afghanistan, Afghanistan and spent a lot of time trying to get people to listen to the idea that we are over-reliant on drones. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you say to yourself, well, how often are those people getting invited to the White House under the Obama administration? How often was the administration actually bringing in the people who are sitting at think tanks in D.C. doing their job every day and not yelping about credibility or, you know, um, I also think of the many, many people who back in 2011 were calling for a lot of things to happen in the Middle East that weren't military in nature. Hmm. And that also kind of made me frustrated reading, reading the article. Um, I, mean, I guess the, la- the last thing I want to mention, and then I'll, I'll stop my little, my little mini tirade, hmm. was, you know, um, Senator Chris Murphy mm-hmm. from Connecticut has been trying for two years to sort of develop a, a node of progressive foreign policy leadership in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And to the best of my knowledge, he has never gotten one bit of support or recognition from the White House for that. So if you, you know, a president, any president, actually has some control over who's perceived as being part of the foreign policy elite. Mm -hmm. And so to to have not really done all that much to lift up or promote people in the foreign policy establishment who agree with your views or who agree with some of your views, although they do criticize you when they think you're not following through on those views. And then to turn around and say, oh, the foreign policy establishment, that that frustrated me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I would say a few things. The first is, is that, I mean, you know, there are ways in which you would, you know, you admire Obama's Overall, like you, I, I think he's done a relatively good job. And, you know, I, I always like presidents who say that they really admire George H.W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft, because um, those are my beau ideals when it comes to uh, American foreign policy. So, um, you know, that was that was good to see. And that in some ways represents the sort of best aspect of, of Obama as a thoughtful foreign policy leader. And that said... You know, the the interviews also revealed without question the absolute worst aspect of the Obama White House, which is the just massive intellectual arrogance that they are absolutely convinced they are right on something Um, when they very well even might be right on on a few of these things. Like, for example, the decision not to intervene in Syria. I mean, in some ways, it's clear. I think that was an intellectual breaking point. And, you know, it's fascinating to me that Obama sort of thought of this as, oh, look, see, I avoided going down this road, which would have, you know, led to a a real problem, which on the one hand, I suppose might be the case. And on the other hand, there's part of me that was reading that essay and screaming, how did you get to the off ramp in the first place to where you think that you really nobly resisted things? Because the way in which, you know, Obama wound up going off that ramp, you know, decide not to take action against Syria was done in such a way as to totally you know, not just annoy America, you know, the foreign policy community, but to annoy his own executive branch um, and pretty much everyone except Dennis McDonough. Uh, it, it drove Congress insane. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I, you could argue that potentially the outcome still might have been the right one. I'm, I'm genuinely agnostic about that. Um, and I do sympathize with Obama on the notion that this notion of credibility being everything is uh, is overblown by a lot of uh the foreign policy community. Um, so I, I'm sympathetic with that. But that said, you know, quit telling me that you managed to do something that alienated the entire, you know, foreign policy establishment um, and did it in the absolute worst way to annoy even your national security advisor 
Um, and yet you think that that was really, you know, a, a wise and uh, uh, smart thing to do. Um, the other thing that came through loud and clear reading it was the utter contempt Obama feels towards most of the Arab Middle East. Um, and that was legitimately surprising to me. Yes. yes. Not in the sense that he feels that contempt, but that he clearly actually said it to, to Goldberg. Um, you know, they're, they're fallen. There's a certain category of statements um, and Obama and even more so Biden uh, at a time used to do this where you say things that are actually true. I don't necessarily disagree with the content of the statement. But that said, you as president can't say those things, um, you know, or if you do so, you are you are obviously going to have to deal with massive amounts of blowback. And I will say that in some ways, the Goldberg interview, his comments on Saudi Arabia, on Jordan, um, on the Gulf states, really, you do see this sort of progression. You know, I mean, he said similar things to his interview with Tom Friedman when the Iran deal was being negotiated. And he said things like this now for the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. And I'm a, I'm. Again, I don't entirely disagree with him, but I'm not sure what he thinks the purpose of it is. Well, you know, there's a, a piece toward the end of the interview, which was what really blew my mind on, on this topic, where he's complaining about all the wonderful things that are going on in Asia and Latin America that we sometimes miss out on right. because of our... And he says, if we're missing talking to these next generations in Asia and Latin America because we're trying to cordon off the most malevolent and hateful aspects of humanity or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I thought about um, the folks who started the nonviolent protests in Syria and in Egypt. Okay. And I thought about, and in Tunisia. Um, and I thought about, you know, people that you can meet now in Jordan, in Palestine, you know, people who are trying to hold on to some aspects of the democratic state in Turkey under just enormous duress. Right. And I thought, you know, if I read that and I read that I'm in a region that the president of the United States just thinks of as a bunch of hateful people that we have to cordon off mm -hmm. and... I don't, what I, what I don't see is a recognition that the Middle East is as hard to deal with as it is because of the sort of worst aspects of humanity in both its regional and global forms that have been concentrated on it for, you know, a hundred plus years now. Mm -hmm. um, and that I see no recognition of that. I just see this kind of, oh, you know, you guys are annoying and it's more fun to play with these other people. Right. And, it, and it's clearly exasperating to him that, I mean, I, as again, I agree with his, his grand strategic concept, which was the Pacific Rim is more important eventually for the United States than the Middle East is. So therefore we should concentrate more attention there. I don't have a problem with that. That's an assessment I would generally agree with. But the problem is, is that that doesn't mean, therefore, you just sort of ignore the Middle East. You can't do that. And clearly his efforts to do so have not, uh, uh, done a terribly great job. And I think that was actually um, the germ, at least one of the germs that uh, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes wrote. Um, there's been a whole series of responses to the Goldberg yes. uh, essay, and I think that's Tamara's point as well, that, that despite Obama's best efforts to avoid this, he has still wound up actually gotten uh, completely enmeshed in, in, in the Middle East. But you're right that the other, th the other aspect of this that is interesting to me is that there's something almost Trumpian about what Obama is saying in some ways about the Middle East and the rest of the world, which is he grumbles a lot about burden sharing. 
uh, in that article. And yeah, he has this notion of let's just cordon off this entire region, which it, it sounds eerily similar to the Trump notion of let's just ban all Muslims until we can figure out what the hell is going on. Well, I that might be a bit of an overstatement. Um, I agree. It's a, yes, it's a little bit of an overstatement, but it's not that much, actually. Mm, I, I mean, the thing that I will say along those lines is where, you know, in some ways he, in that piece, retreats from previous statements he's made taking responsibility for what went wrong in, in Libya. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, that the, the U.S. did some really major things wrong mm -hmm. in Libya. And I, as I've written, think it's incredibly important to see sort of honest and searching discussion about what those things were and why they happened. Um, what I see in that piece instead is basically, well, the Europeans made me do it and then they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. Well, I mean, I think that's the, the more general, I, I think the one thing, the most vexing aspect of the piece, and again, I actually, I say this as someone who admires his foreign policy instincts as a general rule, is there is nothing, in, there, there is almost nothing he owns up to in terms of the way of mistakes in 20,000 words, which is rather astonishing. Uh, well, and I admired that previously I thought there had been some owning up for Libya, yeah. and I thought this mood, and I'm, that, you know, now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one other thing, which is you've been able to hear a sound all over Washington since that piece came out, and that sound is of people who were basically, I mean, who, as you and I have just been saying, were sympathetic. I mean, many people like Tamara Wittes, who, who served... Yeah. And I mean, you know, Tamara, who who gave a couple of years of her life trying to haul the administration to a response commensurate with the level of the change during during the Arab Spring. Right. And many of us, when we saw things happening that we thought were not optimal, have been holding our breath, have either tried to make comments privately or have not made comments at all because we assessed that like many administrations, this was a group of folks who didn't take criticism very well. <laughs> and what you really heard, I think, in the last five, six days is a whole bunch of people saying, okay, you know, either I regret that I didn't say anything sooner or, man, I've been holding this in for a long time. <laughs> and if, 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 if I've been being quiet to try to help him and this is what he thinks of us, yeah. You know, so there is there is this very interesting kind of human dynamic, I think, going on. No, that's actually very interesting. I, 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 this was one of those odd pieces that, like, I saw it and I, for once, did not look to Twitter, did not look at any social media and actually read the damn piece first before getting. How, so I actually haven't seen really how what the Washington reaction has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well. I mean, I've seen a lot of sort of people talking to each other either about pieces they've written or pieces they're thinking about writing. So I think I've seen a lot of people's first drafts um, before, you know, whatever, something slightly more measured. Goes so so you mean you've seen the drafts with the profanity on them is what you're saying? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing, I mean, that I will say and that I have to say I have not quite figured out how to how to write this part up yet is that. You just can't overemphasize, and there's good basic political science about this. A president is not a prisoner of the D.C. foreign policy establishment. You know, Jeremy Shapiro, when he was at still at Brookings, wrote that wonderful piece about how think tank people fall all over themselves to get invited to the White House and brag about it and humiliate ourselves with our pathetic little peacocking about you know, having gotten in to go talk to right. whatever young person. So, so hold on. Could... I, want, I want to push back on that, though, because I, I 
I know I know the piece you're talking about, and I think Jeremy's piece is outstanding. And I think that's true for individual think tankers. But on the other hand, Richard Haas wrote a piece a couple of years ago talking about how it is actually relatively difficult for an administration to pursue a policy that winds up inspiring the calumny of the entire sort of, you know, Washington foreign policy community. And I Well, but but this is the exact counterexample of that because the administration has pursued a policy that gets most of the D.C. foreign policy community to say either I never liked the guy and or what you and I were just saying, I really like the guy. I really appreciated what he was trying to do. But yeah. so in point of fact, this I mean, the, the we'll call it the the Haas conundrum, yeah. maybe appropriately enough after Richard got called out by Donald Trump last week. Oh, that poor bastard. I felt so sorry for him when that happened. But go ahead. Yes. Um, so I felt I felt more sorry for the person manning the CFR Twitter account. Who, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, so I just, you know, well, let me, the D.C. foreign policy establishment has been in flux since the Iraq war for all the reasons that, you know, Barack Obama was elected. So yeah. you had a moment where you could have politically and ideologically really lifted up and directed resources to that part of the foreign policy establishment mm -hmm. that is less interested in credibility for credibility's sake and military for military's sake or use of force for use of force's sake. And that isn't what happened. And if you look at what think tanks exist today and how big their departments are as compared to what they were in 2008, you will not see growth of um, of uh, the, the, the don't yes. the don't do stupid shit caucus has not grown under President Obama's White House tenure. That is a, that's all I'm. That is all a fair I'm statement. Say. I'm writing a whole book about this, so you know you're preaching to the choir on that on, on that front. So that's a uh, that is a fair point. Um, should we segue to the next topic? We should. We should because you know whatever. It's the eighth year of a presidency in a confessional era, so the president has said what he said, and you know it's quite possible that in a year or two from now we will look back on this era with fondness. Well, it should be pointed out that one of the last things that the president is trying to accomplish on his foreign policy agenda is to get uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership ratified by Congress. Uh, it has been negotiated. It has been signed. Uh, the president has trade promotion authority, so it will require a simple up or down vote uh, from the House and the Senate. Uh, and the interesting question is, will be whether or not this happens before the next president is elected, because the odds are extremely good that the next president uh, will be pretty damn protectionist, actually. Um, that, you know, particularly as Marco Rubio seems to be fading from view, the remaining sort of four viable candidates on both sides, Cruz and uh, Trump for the Republicans, and Clinton and Sanders for the Democrats don't have much good stuff to say about trade. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and this is an argument that this is one of the sources of the wellsprings of, of both Trump support um, and Sanders. And I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to the argument that, that trade has been responsible for, uh, particularly the opening of trade with China has been responsible for um, uh, significant stagnation of wages. Uh, as well as the loss of certain manufacturing jobs um, a decade ago. But the, I wrote something in the Post today about how, essentially, I think both Republicans and Democrats are attacking a version of the global economy that existed circa 2006 and does not exist anymore, um, in the sense that Republicans are all obsessed about illegal immigration 
and massive inflows of immigration. And if you actually take a look at the data, it turns out that um, basically since the 2008 financial crisis, we've actually had more uh, migrants leaving this country than coming in. Uh, not to mention the fact that illegal immigration is a problem uh, has been reduced significantly to the point where I now think we have less than 11 million um, illegal immigrants in this country, not to mention the fact that, that the border seems actually relatively more secure than it used to be, um, which causes a lot of Democrats when I point these things out to cluck and say, yes, yes, stupid Republicans. But I also think part of the problem is due to trade, which is that you know, a lot of the criticisms about, let's say, you know, China's manipulation of its currency or uh, other aspects of offshore outsourcing, um, I don't deny probably happened to some extent back in 2006, but most of the data suggests it's not happening anymore. That China is, on the one hand, absolutely intervening uh, in foreign currency markets right now to uh, to affect the value of the renminbi, except it's doing so to prop it up rather than uh, undervalue it. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the criticism of past the the sort of 2006 economy might very well have been warranted. I just don't think it's terribly valid now. Well, I really enjoyed reading this, um, your piece, and also the the Jared Bernstein piece yeah. in the Times that that it's a it's a response to. Right. And I think, you know, the the point I would make, Dan, that I think your analysis is missing, is that you're not looking at the American economy of 2016. And the reason I think that you're getting vote results like in Michigan, where you see um, you see union members bucking their leadership yeah. in endorsement of Hillary to vote for Bernie. Mm -hmm. And you also saw Michigan, Michigan Republicans coming out in great numbers to vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. um, those folks you know, the economy may have changed since 2006, but they perceive that it has only changed for the worse. Right. Okay. That, you know, their incomes haven't recovered, that the manufacturing jobs that have come in are $15 an hour jobs with no benefits as opposed to $25 an hour jobs with full benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, retirement went away and was replaced, if it was replaced by anything, was replaced, defined benefit went away, and if it was replaced by anything, was replaced by 401ks. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and just having gone through, um, having gone through the, the crisis, people feel a lot more insecure and where, what I think the part of your argument that I, that I would buy is that neither party is telling a story on trade that's updated. Yes. So you have the, the facts on the ground as perceived, if you are trying to get or keep a job in Michigan or Ohio or Illinois or, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, and then you add to that that the talk that you get about trade is, is kind of unintelligible and doesn't doesn't really contend with there having having been this recession that trade again, if you're just a person sitting someplace yeah. with a job, did nothing to make it better for you. So so that's where you know, and I don't, I honestly don't think we know how any of these people would behave, would behave on trade. Um, in, in office, none of them. Um, and uh, I think I know how some of them would, but I, I, th th this, it I, would be huge. It would be the best deal ever. I, so, so let me confess here. Uh, this is something I've been meaning to write about, and I, I might very well do so afterwards, but this is something that's been gnawing at me, which is, this question of why is it that I feel more comfortable with someone like, let's say, Marco Rubio on foreign policy than Donald Trump, even though Rubio has said things that in some ways are just in, in, 
even more incendiary potentially, or why I feel more comfortable with Hillary Clinton on TPP or on trade than I do with Bernie Sanders, even though Hillary Clinton is, has tried to be almost as protectionist um, as Bernie Sanders. And part of this is truly, I, I, I know Washington speak. Um, you know, I might not live in the city, but I have studied enough on foreign policy and trade. It's policy. okay, Dan. You're in the establishment. Yeah, Barack Obama hates you just as much as, <laughs> or disdains you just as much as me. He disdains me. He really, really disdains me. <laughs> um, but so, let me put it this way: when when Clinton or Rubio say things on foreign policy, I know enough DC speak so that um, I can uh, hold on, Mimi. You got to calm down. That's just the mailman. He, no, she heard you say Trump. There we go. <laughs> That's all right. I've had four phone calls because we, as viewers may know, we have two big primaries coming up here in Maryland. Oh, right. So, so I'm, I'm, my phone is ringing constantly for my Senate and House seat. Right. So, Who says there are no contested elections left in America? There we go. So anyway, um, my point would be that, uh, that, that I, when I hear either Rubio or Clinton talking, I can parse out exactly what they are trying to say to publics and yet what they are probably also trying to say to people who know th something about policy. So, for example, if Rubio talks about getting tough with Russia, if you actually take a look and see what he proposes, it's nothing that's terribly, you know, all that much worse than what we're actually doing. And similarly, with respect to Clinton and TPP, which I think was easily far and away the most cynical thing she has done in the campaign trail, which is saying something which was coming out against TPP when I assumed the moment she did that, what I was assuming she was doing was doing something was opposing an agreement that she knew by the time, if she was going to be coming into office would already be ratified. So therefore it's a costless thing to do. On the other hand, I have no idea what Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump would do if they were to actually get elected um, in that they are a different, they are different kind of actors. And therefore in some ways I take their words more at face value than I do someone like uh, Clinton or Rubio. And so maybe that's like a bias for me in that I, I feel like I can parse out a sort of professional politician's rhetoric in a way that I can't someone who is on the political margins in some way. Um, but I, that's why I react the way I do. Sorry, go ahead. Well, what I find, no, what I find striking about that is that I suspect a great many Trump and Sanders voters would agree with you yeah. and say, yes, we understand exactly what Clinton and Rubio are right. saying, and we've heard it before and it didn't help us. So, and this, you know, we go all the way back to, uh, that poll back before the Iowa caucuses, uh, where you had Republican voters saying that, um, they viewed, having had national previous national security experience as a disadvantage, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah. I've also personally had the experience of, um, of debating uh, a Sanders supporter. Viewers know I'm a, I'm a strong Hillary supporter. But I have over and over again had the experience of, of either formally debating or just informally discussing with Sanders supporters about, um, and this will allow us to, to shift yeah. in a minute, Dan, to another one of your favorite topics, um, but Bernie's sort of, ridiculous apparent indifference to national security policy and that exactly there's a whole range of issues where I have no idea what he would do or who he would listen to. And people have said to me over and over, Heather, you're right. You have the stronger arguments. You made your case, but I don't care. Mm. So I actually think you've, you've laid out the, you've laid out the case against the establishment on trade pretty well, which is we know what they'll do. Which I, I this is where I'm enough of a, you know, I'm, as you say, I'm a member of the establishment. So that's why I actually, you know, uh, I, 
I support these things. But what I, I will say one thing about the, the piece I wrote and the, the, some of the pushback I've received so far, which I think is a valid one. The one thing I agree with on, and, and I need to say this a little bit more, is that the one thing I've, the one thing I've genuinely been con convinced about over the last decade, whereas I think I was an inveterate free trader before, I still am a free trader, but I do recognize now that, you know, that basically U.S. social insurance programs to cope with trade have been an unmitigated disaster and that if you are going to continue for the United States that, you know, pursue greater economic openness, there have to be an array of a whole array of new policies and not just something like trade adjustment assistance, but, you know, something that genuinely, you know, offers disaffected or displaced workers, you know, something of wage insurance or some other measure that gives them a sense of there is hope beyond desperately trying to cling to a $15 an hour manufacturing job. Um, so, I, you know, the, the, the essence of, of free trade is the notion that you it's a prey to improving. You can potentially make everyone else better off without making anyone else worse off. But the, the key part of that last thing is that to, for that to happen, you actually do have to redistribute some of the benefits a little bit. And the one thing where the United States has abjectly failed over the last 15 years is in redistributing the benefits. And I don't think it mattered all that much prior to, to 2000, because although trade was affecting, you know, sectors before that, um, it was really permanent normal trading relations with China that actually had the dramatic effect on um, on manufacturing employment and so on and so forth. So if this sparks a better conversation and if it wakes Republicans in Congress up, particularly for the notion that there needs more needs to be done in order to maintain an open global economy, then I'm in favor of that conversation. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a soft free trader, right. I suppose. And that what I would, you know, sort of add, I agree with the points you've just made. And I would add that we have drifted into an era where an awful lot of what is in the TPP is not free trade the way you and I and viewers learned what free trade was right. in, in our college econ courses. And an awful lot of what's going on does um, either just flat out is or could certainly appear to be just about purely redistributing benefits in a way that leaves American workers and American taxpayers out of the equation entirely. So I, you know, my hope, and this is, I, I really actually admire the, the place where Jared Bernstein has tried to place himself on these issues because yeah. he both free traders get mad at him and anti-traders get mad at him. Yeah, and I, I, but, yeah, I feel, now you're making me feel guilty that I picked on him, but go ahead, yes. Um, no, but, but I mean, actually, one of my great frustrations sitting where I do is that the sides don't talk to each other right. and that there's so much arrogance, yeah. frankly, that there's so much arrogance among the free trade people that, all, that the anti-trade people are stupid. And, and um, now what you're increasingly seeing, I would argue, though, is increasing conviction among the anti-free traders, the, the pro-free traders are also arrogant and they've been wrong in the past. Therefore, we shouldn't listen to them going forward. Well, and worse than that, that they're corrupt and venal and yes. are, are just operating the trade. And, and again, there's a certain number of things that have happened that um, right. make it harder to argue against that point of view. Let's just say I want to say one more thing on trade because we did have a, a Twitter question about it oh, this okay. morning. And just it was about, you know, the security value of oh, yes. TPP. And I would actually say, from my point of view, the security value of TPP is greater than the economic value mm -hmm. um, because there's so much of TPP that is goodies for particular industries mm -hmm. um, and that isn't broad-based tariff reductions. Um, but what TPP does on the security side is to say to Asian nations, 
the U.S. is here. We're here to stay. Um, the rhetoric about the rebalance to Asia is bigger than one president or one party or one military plan, you know, one five-year military plan. And we're going to be here. We're going to be tied to you. And we're going to be a balance so that you can plan your relations with China in a not entirely subservient way accordingly. And, and that, to me, you know, that's the most important thing about the agreement and why I am not irrevocably opposed to it because it does it sets it yeah. sets a foundation on which you can do good stuff on the security side but also on the economic and even potentially on the political side right i mean I would, a few more things on this I, I would agree with you i mean one of the more interesting parts of that goldberg essay was the the, the emphasis that obama placed on getting uh labor union rights in vietnam for example um which was one of the things that he thought was really important and that has, has gone underreported which i which is through TPP, which is important. Um, I actually think that, that if you want the, the rebalancing strategy to really work, you have to ratify TPP. And I would also give the administration credit, and maybe even the Chinese credit, that the, the one thing that made me worried about TPP was if the Chinese had interpreted it exclusively as sort of an act of containment against China, as opposed to what it is, which is, I would say, simultaneously an act of hedging against China, which is something that's much different as well as setting up a template for which if China wants to join the TPP, then you have, you know, a trade deal more on, on U.S. terms. And I think what's interesting to me is that actually they seem to have pulled that latter part off because China no longer rails against the TPP or talks about it perniciously. Instead, they occasionally start making noises about joining it, although that's obviously a long way off. Uh, but I agree with you that, that you know, the, the political benefits of both the TPP, and for that matter, TTIP, I think, are in some ways greater than the economic ones, the security benefits. I want to slide in one teeny tiny last point here, yeah. coming back to, to our discussion about disdain. And that is, if you want to get credit in the United States for working to get labor rights in Vietnam or wherever else you're working, then it really would be a very good tactical idea to include your labor allies and your environmental allies in the negotiations and give them access rather than freezing them out and treating them in a distinctly disdainful and arm's length way while you are demonstrably working so closely with business. Because again, whether or not you think that you are an honest broker arbiting the interests of all sides, it's very understandable to even amateur students of human nature that the people who are being held, the interest groups that are being held at arm's length will perceive that the interest groups that are not at being held at arm's length are getting a better deal. I will let you make that point and not contest it. <laughs> yeah. But um, speaking of making the best deals ever, <laughs> Dan, um, we have now reached the point where I think we can no longer avoid <sighs> talking about the primary. Yes. Uh, so So you, uh, you signed a letter recently. I did. I did. Uh, it's been interesting to watch the reaction to that letter. Um, so actually, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the last uh, Dresbert we've had. Um, because if you recall, we had a conversation then about whether or not um, Trump, if he continued to do well, and he has continued to do well, at least in the primaries, would start attracting uh, foreign policy support. And I think in the time since we talked last, Jeb Bush is uh, gone. Uh, ben Carson is gone. Chris Christie is gone. Um, if we believe the way the polling is supposed to go tomorrow, Marco Rubio will be gone. Um, and this leads to an interesting question, which was, you know, would eventually the sort of 
Republican foreign policy talent go to Trump? And the answer looks like no, not so much. Uh, I was one of the signatories of a letter uh, basically saying we cannot work for Donald Trump because of all the various crazy ass things he says about uh, foreign policy and the way in which uh, many of his statements and proposed policies uh, would be a detriment to U.S. national interest. Um, I feel very proud that I was finally able to use the R in my rhino category uh, to good use. So I, when I when I heard about the letter, I said I would I would be happy to, to sign on. I got some interesting uh, critical feedback from people that argued that by signing the letter, I was somehow validating neoconservatives, um, which I got to say is one of those signs that you are just way too damn obsessed about neoconservatives, uh, because I actually think it's laudable that while obviously they don't necessarily agree on policy grounds with Trump, I also think in most cases of the people I've talked to, they are legitimately and genuinely horrified by the stuff that comes out of Trump's mouth. I mean, I don't think that I, I think this is not just about policy. It's about what Donald Trump as a person means to America's image um, uh, across the rest of the world. Um, and meanwhile, Trump has continued to promise and continuing to break that promise that he would be rolling out his national security team. I know he named Jeff Sessions as the head of it. Um, I have heard some scuttlebutt that is it Michael Flynn? Um, the Didn't he go to Cruz? Did Flynn wind up going to Cruz? That I don't know. Um, there had been talk. I, I know that that Flynn's name, the, the former head of the DIA, had been linked to Trump. Um, but beyond that, I haven't seen much in the way of uh, actual foreign policy people commit to Donald Trump. Um, of course, this leads to the very scary question of what would happen if he were to actually win the nomination slash the presidency. But I, I have to say, I'm actually gratified by the fact because, as I said, you know, as we talked about before, foreign policy people tend to be bandwagoners. They will go towards whoever's going to be apparently winning, and that hasn't happened this time. All right. I'm going to double down on my previous cynical position. Oh, okay. And um, as, as, as I'm, delighted, um, I'm delighted that you are not, uh, that you are choosing to stay off the Trump bandwagon, although I am a little sorry because they would have been some amazing Dresberts. <laughs> oh, God. No, I can't. But, sorry, go ahead. But let's start, let's start with who's not on that letter. Okay. Condoleezza Rice. Steve Hadley, yeah. uh, George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Jim Baker, Jim Baker, um, Brent Scowcroft. You've been reading Michael Grumwald. Um, who else am I leaving out, though? Basically, um, at the basically at the foreign policy principle level, yes. none, no former GOP foreign policy principle is signed. To, uh, to no, there is one. There is one exception. There is one praiseworthy exception whom we must call out here, and it is Bob Zelik. Yes, and that was actually uh, particularly praiseworthy because, unlike the rest of them, Bob, well, admittedly a former policy principal, has never actually been Secretary of State. Um, and in some ways, he's he would be the logical choice for a lot of Republicans potentially to uh, to become that. So it uh, it is a genuine credit to him that he is uh, throwing that option or throwing that option out of the window. Uh, so yeah. So my point. No, oh, hang on. Yeah. I'm not done yet. Okay. So that's point number one right. is that the people um, after whom many Republican operatives will bandwagon have not declared themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, point number two is an anecdote that I will share, which I was told that apparently Trump ran into Bill Kristol somewhere recently. Oh God. And Trump said I don't to even him, want to hear the rest of the anecdote, go ahead. Bill, it's not too late. You can come over. And my theory is that when or if Trump wins the nomination, he and his lieutenants will take great 
delight in trying to flip people who signed that letter. So I think, um, you know, I've, I've been sort of been thinking about this in, in um, you know, because it's Lent, um, when Christians remember the, the temptation of Jesus, and there's this wonderful scene in the Bible where the devil takes Jesus up above Jerusalem and finds a number of things to tempt him with. And so I, I just, I have this vision of, you know, the devil and Bob Zalek sitting up, um, looking over the spires of Washington, D.C. Um, so, so that's my, my point number two. Wow. And my point number three is um, apparently um, other members of the Republican legislative establishment have been going around town telling people to get ready to get in line behind Trump. Really? So I think you may have a reduced establishment behind Trump, but you will have you will have an establishment behind him. And it will be, um, and it's interesting, I have to say that I think both, the, 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 this, is, this is the flip side of the thing about the neocons that drives us non-neocons so crazy, right? Is the desire to run into a situation sort of um, principles and honor first. And so I do think you will have a group of people who stay out on principle. I'm not sure that they're um, going to be able to I'm not sure that they're going to be able to pull away all the vital organs of the Republican national security establishment with them, if you'll, yeah, if you'll so, take, take that as a metaphor. Okay, so I will, I will push back on this, um, not to deny that, that I, think you're, I think eventually there will probably be a few people that wind up uh, agreeing to work for Trump. First, I, I, you know, at the principal level, and I, I, you know, I, think, I think it was Michael Grumwald, uh, I'm pretty sure that's, or it could be Michael Crowley. I confess that I occasionally get the name screwed up. There was a political piece pointing out that none of the former GOP foreign policy principles had signed up. That said, you know, in, in some ways, those are not people who are necessarily going to want to serve in an administration, period, uh, precisely because they are ex-policymakers. And in some ways, what I'm more interested in is whether or not Trump actually finds people, uh, you know, to, to staff an administration. Um, but that said, you're right, they've, they've held out. The second thing is, is that I'm not even sure, even a week ago, I might have been willing to acknowledge your point. And I'm not sure I can do that anymore, because I do think that the violence that has occurred over the past weekend has really genuinely rattled people. Um, you know, uh, people who had pre who had previously been very sort of oh so cavalier and tactile saying, you know, Trump isn't as bad as Rubio or, you know, there are things to like about Trump. I've now realized this guy really actually has no shame and is actually encouraging violence in some ways um, at a lot of his rallies. And it's leading to a great deal of, of ugliness. So I'm not sure, you know, Trump is all about his brand. And I actually think that in a lot of ways, if you're trying to represent American interests abroad, his brand has gotten worse and worse and worse, um, which I didn't think was possible uh, over the last couple of months. That, that back in November, you could have actually potentially made the argument that there were, you know, as Tom Wright did, for example, that there were certain things that Trump actually did stand for that are ideologically coherent. Um, and maybe if you were like a stone cold mercantilist, you could, you know, back those back those up. I don't you know, I, I think that the degree of toxicity, you know, of campaigning in, over the past couple of days has actually made it that much harder. Um, but that said, I do think you might be right about. If he does get foreign policy people, it'll come essentially from his allies in Congress, like Jeff Sessions and others who wind up endorsing, you know, who decide to endorse him. That what he might wind up doing is getting those kind of staff level people to advise him. But I actually don't think he's going to get 
any of the sort of loom, you know, or or he's going to get people like Giuliani or Chris Christie, um, you know, that essentially are attracted to an authoritarian leader for lack of a better word. Um, but I, I go ahead. I don't, I don't really like being the prophet of doom, gloom, no, and, and moral, yeah, yeah. moral turpitude here. But the one other sort of category of people I would add to the to the is the sort of New York. Yes. Con- that there's a contingent of New Yorkers. This is what I've heard as well. Yes. Eminent in foreign policy circles who have known him socially for many years yeah. and who see him as, you know, not horrible or just not the public figure that we're all that we're all seeing. I would dispute the word eminent. That's not the level of people I've heard on this. Um, but your sources might be better than mine. I have heard there is sort of a a crew of, of New York finance types that are also CFR members that think they know something about foreign policy and think they know Trump. Uh, but in some ways, that's actually more terrifying um, because I could see Trump thinking that these people are perfectly high quality. And I doubt I seriously doubt they are. Um, so shall I conclude by quoting Henry Kissinger here, which it. seems appropriate? Yes. Kissinger said, I believe, and I apologize if I get this wrong by a couple words, I didn't print it out beforehand. I know Trump. I like Trump. I would prefer if someone else were the nominee. That, uh, I mean, that's that the most is Kissingerian very, thing he could yes. have possibly fucking said. Yep. <sighs> yep. And so, you know, I mean, and Kissinger doesn't, he doesn't want to be in government again. Yeah. But, um, you know, he does want to be, be listened to, though, yes. Yes, he'll be hanging around, and that will make it okay for a certain brand of, um, um, I'm looking for a word. Um, Mandarin, uh, collaborator. Um, <laughs> yeah, any of Quizzling, those words. A cert- you know, sorry, go ahead. A, a certain brand of aggressive and um, ambitious individual to, toady. to attach. Toady, the word is toady. Sorry. To attach himself. Yes. And I do mean himself to the campaign. Ooh, ooh. Okay. So, so that's my that's my prediction. All right. Well, but, I, um, you know, I will say that I think I've at least for the the since the last time we talked, I I was proven to be somewhat correct. Um, but I will always acknowledge that you you probably have at least half a point here, and we will see going forward how things play out. Well, you get major points for, I mean, actually sort of going out and, and sort of active actualizing something that we talked about on here. And it's not, it's not every day that you catch members of the foreign policy establishment, you know, putting their signatures on controversial things. So props to you, Professor Dresner. And with that, uh, see you next month. Yes, looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.